Amen. Even at the risk of us not choosing him, he came. And be among us. Good morning. Just kidding. Good afternoon. Happy Sabbath. It is a privilege to be worshiping together this morning, this afternoon. Can you hear me? Perfect. Would you bow your heads one more time as we pray together? God, we thank you so much for bringing us together here. Lord, we know you have gathered and led us up to this point, not by accident, but for a purpose. And we thank you, Lord. And as we open your word, we ask for your spirit to guide us together. And Lord, I ask that you would speak for me and to me and through me once more. We love you and pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen. When I was six years old, I had a traumatic experience that involved a Hot Wheels car and a swimming pool. Yes, I said Hot Wheels car. He's paying attention now to me. I was at one of my swimming lessons. I had finished mine, but I was waiting for my brothers to wrap up. I've showered, I've dried up and put on different clothes, and I thought it'd be cool to play with my car toy just along the edge of the pool while waiting. Uh, the pool was in a rectangular shape, uh, with one end being the shallow end and the other the deep end, eight feet to be exact. And it just so happens that I was on the deep end of the pool when I started experimenting just how well how uh, just how well Hot Wheels cars uh, would float when they're sinking. And so what you'd anticipate to happen actually happened. <laughs> I was so mesmerized at the reflection of the car in the water, um, made it it kind of made it look bigger as it sinks deeper and deeper. So by the time I realized what's happening, I reached in really quick and bloom, there was Gatra in the water. The next thing that I know, my cousin who had uh, driven us to the lesson uh, pulled me out of the deep end of the pool. It was, needless to say, it was embarrassing. About two years after that, I had another experience when I was body surfing at the beach. I was swimming far enough where I could no longer touch the bottom, you know, where you, you, could all, you, you need to swim to stay afloat. And I was semi enjoying the waves until the waves got the best of me. And I remembered one of those waves got me tumbling over uh, around several times to the point where I couldn't tell which way was up. Thankfully, the first direction that I chose to swim to was in fact up. But for a split second there, I thought that was it. I said my prayers. As you can probably imagine, this is probably why I'm not too excited about being in the water or doing water sports as recreation. And it's true that I'd rather lift heavy weights, go ziplining, or even go skydiving before I would go anywhere near water. 
Sure, you could say that these experiences are the birthplace of my mild aquaphobia. Strong emphasis on mild. And perhaps even simophobia, fear of waves. But please make no mistake, I want you to hear me loud and clear. I can swim. <laughs> Isaac, I can swim. I will not hesitate to swim to rescue you. I will not hesitate to get into the water to supervise you and to pull you out. I just won't swim for fun like my wife does. The trouble is though, what if God is calling me to places where I would need to enjoy swimming and I hesitate or worse, don't go. Perhaps even worse, what if because of whatever we fear, we worry or concern that we have, we end up going to places we shouldn't. We end up doing things we shouldn't. We end up becoming the things that we fear most. What if fear ends up killing our ambition? What if fear ends up killing our initiative, our creativity, our risk-taking ability? And what if fear ends up killing our courage? What if fear ends up killing our God-given identity, purposes, and dreams? What if fear prevents us from really listening and understanding others, especially those who believe differently than us? What if fear prevents us from really serving others and serving our community? What if fear leads us to unhelpful and dangerous places? On Wednesday evening, March the 3rd of 1943, at exactly 8.17 p.m., bomb raid sirens filled the entire city of London. Buses and cars screeched to a halt and pas passengers swarmed out of them, gunning for safety. Gunfire erupted in the air, rockets were launched from the anti-aircraft forces, and throngs of people in the street were screaming. Some threw themselves on the ground, awaiting certain death. Others covered their heads and cried, they're starting to drop them, they're starting to drop them. Thousands of eyes looked up and scanned the black canvas of the night looking for German bombers, though none were to be seen or heard. Many ran toward the Bethnal Green Tube Station, joining more than 500 others who had already taken shelter there. And that number quickly grew to 2,000 in just 10 minutes. And that's when the danger began. As few survivors recounted that a woman carrying her young child tripped on one of the first 19 steps flight of stairs leading down from the street. And an elderly man tailgating tripped over her and thus the inevitable domino effect to follow. And the momentum was just unstoppable. It pushed them forward and downward as others tripped and fell on top of them. 173 people, including 84 women and 62 children, as young as five months old, were all 
killed that night in a crush, in a stampede, while attempting to shelter from what they thought was a bombing raid. Yet not a single bomb ever fell. The full scale of this tragedy became clear to the community in the days that followed. But the true cause was kept secret for 34 years, at least. And some suggested that the station was directly hit by a bomb of an enemy aircraft, but there was no air raid that night, nor was there any bomb dropped. The sad truth was that the authorities were testing new anti-aircraft guns at nearby Victoria Park. And they made a catastrophic miscalculation. They assumed people would treat the test as a routine air raid and would file calmly into the tube station as normal. But the unfamiliar sounds of this weaponry caused people to feel the shock, the terror, the fear that they were under attack from a new weapon of destruction. The sad truth was that fear killed 173 lives that night. What if fear leads us to unhelpful and dangerous places? as an individual, as a family, and as a church. Because church family, more than we would like to admit, fear is paralyzing. And it could lead us to those places to do the unthinkable. And yes, fear kills. And this morning, I just, I feel like I have the privilege to remind us and, from, and through Psalm 27, what David shared, that we can, in fact, turn to God and find refuge in him. Psalm 27 was written at a time when David was alone and afraid. King Saul had put out a contract on David, and bounty hunters from everywhere were scouring every forest and every cave looking for David. In the moments of despair, of isolation, of distress, filled with fear, David turned to God and sought refuge in his presence. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. God is my fortress. God is my fort, <laughs> if that works for you. He protects us from the heat of persecution and opposition. He is the rock that keeps us above the floods of pressures and strife that constantly surround us. David reminds us in Psalm 27 that the real antidote to fear that we experience is found in God's presence. David found courage in God's presence. David found confidence in God's protection. And David's inviting us again, church family, to be by his side, to abide in God, 
and to have confidence in God's protection. I know this is communion, which means it's a brief, uh, a shortened time for uh, the, the message. But I just want to encourage you again to read Psalm 27. Because it's beautiful in its entirety. But I just want to highlight as well what I'm trying to say. is It's really not exhaustive what I'm trying to do. That's also the case. But I do want to share the parts that really resonated with me the most in preparation for this. And that is the verse 4 and verse 5. Where David says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. I don't know where you have been this week. I don't know what you've been experiencing. If I can just remind you again that we can turn to God and find refuge in him. We can turn to him in everything and anything. But I want you to notice that David isn't just asking to move into God's temple. But he's asking rather the temple of God's dwelling place to move into him. David sought God's presence like he depended his life on it. He desires to spend all of his days in the house of God so that he could gaze on the beauty of God. David desires to abide in God's presence forever. And if I can just mention a few observations that I believe David believed and understood deeply and le had left us as a posture to follow, which by the way, Psalm 27, Psalm 27 is a place where I often turn to when I'm afraid, when I'm in distress. Psalm 27, if I can just highlight a few things as to suggest perhaps that the best way to deal with fear is that God's, is being in God's presence, abiding in him. Because when we abide in him, we can be confident in his protection. When we abide in him, we can be confident in the providence of God. We can be confident in his presence. And we can be confident in the promise and the promises of God. In the most fear-inducing, terrifying circumstances, we can turn to him and seek his face. And when we seek his face, we see his face. We experience him. And we never face darkness, danger, disease, or disaster alone. Sometimes God may hold our hand, our hands and walks with us in our fear. Sometimes God puts us on his shoulders and carries us above the fear. Sometimes God wraps his arms around us and shelters us from, the, from our fear. And sometimes God delivers us from our fears. However it is that God may show up in our lives, 
My friends, we can be confident, just like David, to take courage in his presence. I love how Ellen White puts it. It is the gospel of the grace of God alone that can uplift the soul. And it is God's presence alone that can banish fear. I've entitled this Overcoming Fear. But what I hope for all of us to not mistake is that when we think of overcoming fear, it's not that we would rely on our strength, our insights, our own devisings, and our wisdom. But I'd like to suggest is that we would turn to him and to seek his face. Because only then we would have the chance to overcome fear. David recognizes that beyond the breaking point of even the deepest and the most committed promises of human love, God's acceptance is still even more steadfast. His promises never fail. Even at our worst, God will not disown us. He won't change the locks on our doors. He won't write us out of his will. He won't refuse to take our calls. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So whenever fear raises its head, I hope that you remember that we can be confident because because God is beside us, behind us, and before us. Let me pose some questions for us to ponder. What makes us feel afraid? Where do we turn to when we're afraid, worried, or in distress? And what provision of God can we have more confidence in? I hope that we would turn to God just like David.